tonight we are going to look at the four horsemen of the apocalypse and uh, Revelation chapter number six. This is uh, where it really begins to get interesting as we begin to look at um, the Word of God and begin to look at what's going to be taking place in the end times and the seals are going to begin uh, being opened and uh, we're just excited about um, learning about what God is doing as we get into the end times. In chapter 4, we saw, we're right in the top of your outline. Does everybody have an outline? Anybody need an outline? Let's go there. I'll make sure everybody gets one. Who else needs one? Oh, don't take one. I'm in double trouble tomorrow. Anybody else? Anybody else? I need a plan. <laughs> Even the greatest, even the greatest one you come up with, I'll still have that one, all right? Miss Leslie, Miss Leslie. All right, uh, so we're right at the top of your outline. In chapter 4, we saw John caught up to the very throne room of God in heaven, where he gazed upon the rainbow-encircled throne of God, and as it were, the royal court of God, acknowledging the glory of God in creation. We saw that in chapter number 4. Then last week, uh, in chapter number 5, the attention shifted to the seven-sealed book, uh, and the one worthy to open it. We found out uh, that this book contains the unfolding of the consummation of the age, the fulfillment of God's eternal plan to set all creation free from sin and death and to bring judgment upon all those who have rejected him. We saw that last week in uh, chapter number five as it all began to unfold. And we found out that there's only one that's worthy to open the book. And who is that? Jesus, that's right. The only one that's worthy to open the book. The judgments of the book of Revelation begin in chapter number 6 and end in chapter number 19. So we're going we're gonna to travel from chapter number 6 to chapter number 19, talking about the judgments of the book of Revelation. Actually, 13 of the book's 22 chapters describe the terrible judgments, beginning with the opening of the seven-sealed scroll. Much of the book of Revelation is distasteful. That's the word you're looking for. It's distasteful to many modern minds. Because the world would rather believe God is exclusively a God of love, but God is a God of judgment as well. And it's very important that we understand that. That, you know, when we look at the scenario of the Word of God, and we all want to claim John 3.16 for God so loved, and He did. But you got to understand that His love, if you begin to transliterate the Word of God, His love is a righteous love. It is a judgment love. It is a love that extends to the end of time, but it's a love that says that if you do not accept me as your personal Savior and you do not uh, take me as your own, that judgment is certainly going to come upon you. And then if you are a Christian, that God loves you so much that whenever you make mistakes, whenever things happen in your life, uh, you, you, get, you, you get some discernment. The Bible says that, that he will correct you. He will uh, realign you just as a father does. And so he is a God of love, but he's also a God of judgment. Though some see the breaking of the seals as beginning in the past, and we've talked about this uh, a little bit, and perhaps continuing until the end of the age, there is nothing in history to correspond with the events that transpire when the seven seals are broken. Therefore, it must be concluded that these happenings are in the future. And I, I stated that again, as we talked about before, about the idea of a pre-tribulational rapture, a mid-tribulational rapture, and a post-tribulational rapture. We talked about a few weeks ago. Um, 
here's another uh, concrete evidence that these things have not happened and they will not happen until the rapture occurs. And uh, you'll see as we begin to open these seals that these things have not yet to happen and so they must happen in the future. Uh, Sorry. <laughs> the opening of the seals continues the description of what John saw when he was caught up to heaven in the throne room of God, beginning in chapter 4. As the seals are opened in chapter number 6, the scene shifts from heaven to earth. So everything that we've seen so far uh, has happened in heaven. We talked about the church age, and then after the church age, John chapter number 4 said, I saw, and I was caught up, and so we went into heaven in uh, chapter number 4 and chapter number 5, now the scene is going to shift again back to earth because the seals um, on the scroll are beginning to open. Now you understand, that's very important that you understand this, and, and I'll hit this again, but the seals are nothing more than a preliminary uh, to the events that are going to happen. They are just the seals that seal the scroll. They are not the scroll themselves. They are just the seals. So these judgments that are occurring are, are literally just the, the, the preliminary events that are going to be taking place um, during the judgment. It's important that we understand that. These are just the seals. Number one, the white horse. The white horse. Chapter number six, verse number one. We'll start reading. Chapter number six, verse number one. The Bible says this, And I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder... One of the four beasts saying, Come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat on him had a bow, and a crown was given unto him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. So the white horse is the first seal that is open. This is um, the most um, misunderstood seal um, of all the seals for the scroll. And we're going to talk about why in just a moment. Because when you look here at the description in chapter number 6 and verse number 2, and I saw and behold a white horse, we associate what with a white horse? Christ. And him that sat on him had a bow and a crown. We associate crowns with Christ given unto him. And he went forth conquering and to conquer. But it's very important that you understand, this is not Christ. Because Christ is the one that is, well, he is the sword, but he's the one opening the seals. He's the one opening the seal. So this is not to be confused with Christ. And we'll talk about that. Um, when the Lamb opens the first seal, one of the four beasts or living creatures says, Come and see. John looks and sees a white horse, and, and he that sat on him had a bow. There has been much disagreement as to the identity of the rider on the white horse. Basically, the confusion is over whether the rider represents Christ or the Antichrist. There are some similarities to this writer and Christ according to Revelation chapter 19. Take your Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter number 19 with me. Now we just read in Revelation chapter 6 that behold a white horse, him that sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given unto him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. Revelation chapter 19, verse number 11. Revelation 19, verse number 11. And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many... Crowns. Key word is many. 
many crowns. Chapter 6 and verse number 2 says, and he had a crown. Christ has many crowns. Um, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture uh, dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven followed him upon... They followed him on white horses, clothed in fine linen, uh, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword. There we go. There's the sword. Uh, that with it should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and he treadeth the winepresses of the fierceness and wrath of the Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So there are obviously some similarities. There are some similarities. There are, there are some striking similarities between this writer and Christ, but it should be noted that this writer has a crown, while the victorious Christ in chapter number 19 and verse number 12 has many crowns. We also see, uh, also the Lamb, Christ, opens the seals, and he would not, that was the word there, he would not be one of the riders. And furthermore, furthermore, there are four riders, and Christ is not one of the four, he is all in one. Do you understand that? He, he is all in one. Now, I'm not saying that he is a, a rider. I'm saying that as God himself, he cannot be divided up into four. Uh, he is all in one. So the white horse, who do we think the white horse may represent then? The Antichrist. The Antichrist. How do we come to that conclusion? Anyone who is familiar with Scripture would expect the Antichrist to resemble Christ. Okay? Tell me, and... and this lesson that we have, there's probably no way we're going to get through it tonight, so we're going to leave you with a hanging chad by the time we leave, all right? Uh, but tell me what you, when you think of the Antichrist, what are some of the things that you think of when, when you think of the Antichrist? A counterfeit, okay. I heard somebody say, horns, okay, what else? He's loved by all. He's loved by all, good, what else? What's that? Oh. <laughs> we're going to have a private counseling session here. Uh, the Antichrist. What, what do you think of when you... Deceitful. Good. He, he is trying to be Christ in the clearest form. He is trying to be like Christ. But at the same time he's trying to be like Christ, he is being Antichrist in his... Uh, the way that he's pulling people and the way that he's, he's uh, uh, trying to get them to follow him. And so in order for that to happen, people must think in their mind. They must buy into the fact that he may be Christ. That's why he is very similar in fashion to Jesus. And so when you think about that, it, it can be confusing. It can be. I, I understand that completely. But that is why it's important that we dissect the word of God. So that we don't get confused. Because if you look at this and you take this white horse, the first seal as being Jesus, then we have a problem. We have a doctrinal problem. We have a serious doctrinal problem. Because that throws out everything that we've learned in chapter 1 through 4. Uh, about where Christ is and who he is and how he is. So we have to understand that this is not Christ, this is in fact the Antichrist. Second Thessalonians tells us this let no man deceive you by any means, for the day shall or for that day shall not come except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, 
That's talking about the Antichrist. Who opposeth, listen to this, and exalteth himself above all that is called God. Who does that sound like? Satan. Remember, he, he, was, he, he was the angel in heaven. He was Lucifer. He, he was like God's right-hand man in heaven. And why did he get, he, why did he get pushed out of heaven? In the book of Isaiah. What's that? He wanted to be like the most high. His pride. He wanted to be Christ. And because of that, the Bible says in the book of Isaiah that he had to be removed from the heavenlies. So he can't do that. He's no longer uh, in heaven. He's no longer a part of the heavenlies. So what is he going to do? He is going to deceive and he is going to do his very best to get people to believe that he is who he wants to be. Does that make sense? So, uh, who opposed and exalted himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he, as God, sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. So, uh, it, it, he's trying to deceive. The combination of the, excuse me, the conqueror's crown and the bow without arrows indicates he will go forth conquering and to conquer peacefully, probably through diplomacy. Um, that is the thought process, and, and it, it may not be that way. That, that's just the only conclusion that I can come to when you think about being able to rule and conquer peaceably. Because if you look at chapter number 6 and verse uh, number 2, the Bible says, And he that sat on him had a bow, and never talked about his arrows. It just talked about a bow, which means that he's coming to conquer in peace. We talked about what the tribulation is. The first three and a half years of the tribulation is what? It's peace. The second half of the, of the tribulation is war. And so we have that he's coming. In the beginning, this Antichrist will not appear as the villain that he is. Paul warns us of this in 1 Thessalonians where he says this, for, ye, for yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. For when they shall say, Peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. Verse number three, or, oh, that was verse number three, sorry. Um, so when Christ comes to the earth again, his weapon will not be a bow with no arrows, and his mission will not be to bring peace. Instead, Revelation chapter 19 tells us of his weapon and his effect. So we know that Jesus, this cannot be Jesus because that... His weapon of choice and the reason he's coming is not the same as the Antichrist. Revelation 19.15, we just read that. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword. Nothing about a bow and arrow. Nothing about a bow and arrow. Uh, and with it he shall smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, iron and he treadeth the winepresses of the fierceness and wrath of the Almighty God. Then verse 21 says, And the remnant were slain with what? The sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceeded out of his mouth, and all the fowls were filled with their flesh. We're going to fast forward for a moment. Uh, we're not at chapter number 19 yet, but I'm just going to give you a little teaser. Anybody know why it's coming out of his mouth? Uh-huh. The Bible says that the, the Bible is as sharp as a what? Two-edged sword. Literally, it's only going to take the words of Jesus Christ that are written within the word of God to destroy and to kill and to and, and literally slain those during the end times. So it's literally his words. 
Um, the future conqueror on the white horse will come promising peace and safety. And the word you're looking for, and will deceive the world into following him. Deceive the world into following him. And then will come the opening of the second seal. By the way, uh, this deception is nothing new. The enemy has been trying to deceive people since the beginning of time. He, he's been deceiving people into uh, not trusting Christ. Um, he's been deceiving people into thinking that um, they have everything that they need without Christ. And it's a great deception. And so uh, this is the white horse. The second seal that's open is the red horse. The red horse. Verse number three. <clears throat> and when he had opened the second seal, I heard the second beast say, Come and see. And there went out another horse that was red, and power was given to him that sat therein, or thereon, to take peace from the earth, and that they should kill one another, and there was given unto him a great sword. Um, one thing I need to tell you before we jump into the next, next statement, because I didn't tell you this, and I apologize. Um, you may be wondering who um, the beasts are, the four beasts, um, where it says, and uh, it says, one of, in verse number one, it says, one of the four beasts saying, come and see. Verse number three, I heard the second beast say, come and see. The beast, if you, um, if you uh, look that word up in the Greek, it actually means living creature. He's living creature, and so it is a person um, that is saying, "Come and see." Um, it is a different word that is tran- than is translated as we get further along, where it talks about wild beasts. Um, that actually has to do with when you transliterate that word, that is an animal of some sort. Um, but in this scenario, the beast is meaning a living creature. So you might want to write that down. Living creature is what it means um, there. Okay, so um, he has the red horse. Is the second seal, and I apologize, I didn't clear that up at verse uh, two. Um, the red horse. What's the red horse? Well, at the opening of each seal, one of the living creatures, we just said that, come and see. At the breaking of the second seal, there went out another horse that was red. Now, this rider is on a fiery red horse, which symbolizes bloodshed and war. For he will take peace from the earth and cause humanity to kill one another. So I want you to imagine this for a moment, okay? We had the white horse, peace, tranquility, everything is great. Everybody's thinking, well, this can't be that bad. And then the second seal is is open. And literally, when the second seal is open, it symbolizes all-out war. So much to the fact that they're killing each other. They're not raging or waging war against an enemy. They're waging war against one another. I mean, it would be like all of us breaking out our swords and having a fight right here. I mean, that's what this seal does. It literally, friends turn to enemies in a matter of moments when this second seal is open. And the cause is to humanity is to kill one another. Uh, as a further indication of the extensive bloodshed, the rider on the red horse has a great sword. That's very interesting to me. The peace brought by the first rider will be superseded by manslaughter and murder. The size of the sword denotes the large number of people who will be killed. So it says he has a great sword, which denotes the large number of people that will be killed. Now, some have conjectured this could be a reference to one of the great persecutions against Christians like those of Nero and Domitian. 
But the difference is, in those facets, is that people are actually killing one another. If we want to talk about, oh, well, we believe in a post-tribulation rapture, then we're going to say, well, the red horse has already happened. The seal has already been opened. Because you look at what happened with Nero, you look at what happened with Domitian. But here, people are killing one another. In other words, what I mean by that, in times of persecution, Christians did not kill their persecutors. Right? There is no indication in Revelation as to the date or cause of this tremendous bloodshed following the red horse is the breaking of the third seal. So when we talk about this, it's not possible that it's already happened. Because in Nero and Domitian, they, were, they, were, they had armies that were just killing Christians. But nobody was killing them. This, the Bible says, they're turning against one another. I mean, I can't imagine. I can't imagine the thought process of just walking somewhere and seeing someone and then just killing them just for, you know... Because this was happening. And it's happening by great bloodshed. It's happening by great numbers of people. And we'll actually talk about how many people it is in just a moment. So number three, the black horse. The black horse. Chapter number six, verse number five. The third seal. And when he opened the third seal, I heard the third beast say, come and see. And I beheld, and lo, a black horse, and he that sat on him had a pair of balances in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four beasts saying, A measure of wheat for a penny, and three measures of barley for a penny, and see thou hurt not the oil and the wine. Now this is actually a very uh, interesting passage of scripture. Uh, Because we just had peace, now we've had war. Now the third seal is open, and what do we find? What normally follows war? Famine and poverty. That's right. Famine and poverty. So we open the third seal, and that's what we get with the black horse. We get famine, and we get poverty. The black horse represents the famine and poverty that always follows war. John says in verse 5, And he that sat on him had a pair of balances in his hand. The word balances literally means scales. Indicating everything had to be weighed. Everything had to be weighed. You remember, it used to be, well, it still is, uh, but in Michigan, it's a little different. In Michigan, uh, where we spent uh, several years, you go to a store, it's called Meyer. Anybody ever heard of Meyer? Okay. So it's, it's Kroger, but in the north is Meyer, all right? But in Meyer, you go to the produce section. And uh, unlike Kroger, I, I'm, I'm going to say something that I shouldn't say, but I'm going to say it anyway. Uh, Kroger's produce section is not always the best. Um, but you go to Meyer and they have an excellent produce section. But when you go there, um, I know I should have said that. But when you go there and, and, and you get your bag, what's that? Oh, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> this town is too small. This town is too small, all right? I won't, let, I won't let him listen to the recording, all right? Um, it's good most of the time. It's my opinion, right? Okay, anyways. So, but you go to Meyer and you pick out your, your produce, but... You know how here you put it in your bag and you go to the front and they weigh it and then the price shows up? Well, in, in, in Meyer you don't do that. They actually have scales there and you put it on the scale, you type in what it is, everyone has a number, and then it prints out a receipt and you put it on the bag. If you go to the front counter, they will send you back to the produce section to do it. You, you have to do it. And uh, it's all weighed. That's how it's measured out by cost. 
So here we have the same type of idea is that the word balance is literally means scales, meaning all the food that you purchase is going to have to be weighed and it's going, you're going to have to pay based upon the weight of what you buy. Um, so what does all that mean to us? Well, then John heard a voice in the midst of the four beasts. This voice speaking out of the midst of the four living creatures seems to be God himself. Verse number six, let's look at it together. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four beasts say, so this is G, this is what we believe is God himself. Okay. We believe God himself is literally specifying commodity prices. He's saying this, a measure of wheat for a penny. And three measures of barley for a penny, and see thou hurt not the oil and the wine. So what does all that mean to us? Well, literally, the Greek word translated measure is a dry measure of less than a quart, or about a day's food. Okay? The Greek word translated penny was a day's wage for the average worker. Do you see that? It would cost you a whole day's wage... To get one day's worth of food. Do you see it? The Greek word measure is dry measure of less than a quart. Or about a day's food. And that's not very much food. In case you're wondering. And then a penny was a day's wage for the average laborer. Famine. That's where we're at. <clears throat> poverty. Much Poverty. Now, barley was purchased by the poor to mix with wheat. It was the food for slaves and horses, but apparently if purchased instead of wheat, it could feed a small family for a day since it was one-third cheaper. So you see that? It says a measure of wheat for a penny and three measures of barley for a penny. So you could get three times more barley than you could wheat. But it wasn't something that they really enjoyed eating or using. These prices indicate a severe shortage, meaning the average worker would barely be able to survive. And if there was a family involved, starvation would be a real problem. Now we have the phrase, hurt not the oil and the wine. This is a very interesting phrase, and I, I know you're probably reading ahead, but I, the honest truth is, is what I'm about to tell you is, is th there is no clear explanation of what hurt not the oil and the wine is. The only conclusion that I can come up with and many other uh, good um, um, commentators and philosophers have come up with is this. It's not clear, but it seems to me that since these are not necessities, oil and wine was not a necessity, like wheat and barley, but were luxuries of the rich, then the rich people would not be affected by the third seal. Hurt not the oil and the wine. So those that are, are better off or, or have more um, in their bank accounts would not be affected by the famine. And, and by the way, that's all the way through history. That's why the assumption is made. This would be consistent with the fact that the wealthy always fare much better during famine than does the average person because their resources circumvent the shortages. All right. So we're on the third seal. Aren't you glad already that you're not here? Right? We're already glad. Because there's some serious situations going on. Number four, the pale horse. The pale horse. Verse number seven. 
And when he had opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth beast say, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And his name that sat on him was Death. And hell followed with him. Look at this. And power was given unto them over the fourth part of the earth to kill with sword and with hunger and with death and with the beast of the earth. Wow. So the four seals open. We have gone from peace to bloodshed and war to famine and poverty to now literally God gives death and hell the power to go demolish or to totally wipe off of the face of the earth one-fourth of the population. And you realize we're only at the fourth seal. This is a, a... a judgment that begins many other judgments as God begins to literally allow the apocalypse to happen and unfold in the book of Revelation. The last summoning about a, about or excuse me, the last summoning shout of come and see is uttered by the fourth living creature, and John looks and behold a pale horse. The Greek word translated pale is a pale green, like that of a sick or a dead person. It's pale green like that of a sick or a dead person. The color goes along with the name of the writer, Death, who is followed by another name, Hell, which we translate as Hades, which is the holding place for those that are not saved. You realize that there's a difference between Hades and the lake of fire. Okay, let me explain it. Some of you kind of looked at me like, what? Um, when, when a lost person... Okay, let's start with a saved person. It's very important. When a saved person passes from this life to the next, they do not go to a place of purgatory. They do not go to any type of holding place. The Bible says to be absent from the body is to be <laughs> present with the Lord. There is no reason that there is any other reason that we should believe that that doesn't happen. When a person leaves the earth and they know Jesus Christ is their personal Savior, their immediate residence is in heaven, okay, as their soul. The Bible says that when Jesus Christ comes back for the bride, <coughs> that those who have passed on before will be caught up first, and those which are alive and remain will be caught up together to be with them. That is when the body meets the soul, okay? When a lost person dies, they go to Hades, which is a holding place. For those that are lost. Because you realize there are two judgments. There's the great white throne judgment. There's the judgment seat of Christ. The lost people are uh, going to be judged at the great white throne judgment. What are they being judged out of? Anybody? The, the, the fact that they're not, their names are not written in the book of life. That they have rejected Christ. Once that judgment takes place, they are sent to the lake of fire. We'll talk about that in Revelation chapter 19. Where the Bible says... It's burning with fire and brimstone. It is a bottomless pit. It's terrible. It's awful. And so that is where they go, the lake of fire. So here, the Bible talks about the writer is death, who is followed by another name, hell, which means death is brought to those folks, and when they die, they go to the place of Hades or hell. Does that make sense? Any questions about that? I don't want anybody to be confused. We good? All right, good. So... 
At the breaking of the first seal, the world seems to have entered an era of peace where all could anticipate the good life. But this all quickly dissipates as the judgments begin in verse number four. The dream of the good life is shattered by the reality of hunger, starvation, anarchy, violence, and utter chaos. As a result, death and Hades come on the scene. Death claims the body, and Hades claims the soul. Death claims the body, Hades claims the soul. Death claims the body, and Hades claims the soul. So any of those that are left during tribulation are bound for Hades? Okay. How do you get to the tribulation? That's the first question. So here I am on earth, and the Lord Jesus Christ comes back today. The rapture happens. Let's just say it happens in five minutes. Um, So the rapture happens in five minutes. What happens to me if I'm saved? You're going to heaven. Who are the only people that are left? The lost. The lost. That's correct. So, the only way that you can go through the tribulation is if you're lost. We all understand that. Okay? If you're saved, you're gone. If you're lost, you're stuck. Okay? Now, there are two different type of lost people during the tribulation. There are some lost people that have heard the gospel. They've heard the truth. They know the truth. The Bible says that those that know the truth been exposed to the truth, their eyes will be blinded. They cannot be saved. Do you understand that? If you've had an opportunity here on earth, when you get to heaven, I mean, when, you, when you're left behind, the Bible says that you'll be blinders or blind, and you're hopeless. There's that nothing means you've that rejected. That's correct. You've re- you have openly rejected Christ. That's correct. Okay? Because, and, and this could get really deep. I understand that, okay? And, and there's a lot of different beliefs about this. And so I'm going to hit it lightly, and you can feel free to ask me questions. People have said to me, Pastor, well, what about the guys in the deepest part of Africa? There's no missionaries there, and they've lived and they died. Where did they go? The Bible says this, and I, I want you to understand it. I'm not trying to be hard. I'm just trying to share the Word of God with you. The Bible says, The heavens declare the glory of God and, and the firmament. That's right. And the Bible says that Jesus came to what? Seek and to save who? That which is lost. So if I'm in the deepest part of Africa, I'm looking around and I'm going, there's got to be something more. There's got to be a God out there. The Bible did not say, I will seek him. He came to seek and to save. So I believe that if somebody wants to know who Jesus is, Jesus will reveal himself. You say, how, Pastor? I don't know. But I do know this. If he's got the power to rise again, certainly he can reveal himself. Okay? So I believe that if you die without Christ, you go to Hades. During the tribulation, however, as we'll pass forward here, but I'm just going to lightly pass on it. There are people that will be saved during the tribulation. Okay? Um, there will be people that will reject the mark of the beast. There will be people that uh, will be killed um, because of their salvation or because of their belief. Okay? So there will be people that are saved. I, I don't have time today, tonight, but we'll talk about who those people are and, and how they get to that place. But bottom line is this. This is, this is what's most important today. Most important today is to know this. 
that if I've heard the gospel over, I've been exposed to the truth, and I reject, and I say, you know, I don't accept Jesus Christ as my personal Savior, and the Lord comes back today, I have no hope. I have no hope. Okay? But, Pastor, there are the, the Jews. So their eyes are closed. They cannot see right now. Correct. And it says that when they get to this moment, their eyes will be open. That's correct. So I understand it. So some of them will be And we're going to get to that. Okay. Yes. That was a question that came back, I think, in chapter number two from Brother Gerald. Um, and we talked about the fact that the Jews were on the front burner, and then they rejected Christ, and then the Gentile nation accepted him. And so then the Gentiles came to the forefront. But, Miss Donna, I also want you to know that it's very important that we understand that when we talk about the closure of the eyes of the Jews, that um, it is not a full closure. The Jews are being exposed to the gospel. And as a matter of fact, they are being saved. They are, they are seeing Christ. Uh, but uh, the majority of them, as the majority lies, are still looking for the Messiah. And the reason they're still looking for the Messiah is because of the past generations that have said, we're still looking for the Messiah. And so there is going to be the remnant of the 144,000 that will come back and evangelize the Jews. And we'll talk about all that as we get closer. Okay? Good. I know I'm throwing a lot of information at you, but we'll get there. All right? Um, so back to the pale horse. Oh, man. At death, the soul of a lost person goes to Hades and awaits judgment that will determine the degree of eternal punishment. Now, this is a very, um, a very um, touchy subject, but I like touchy because I'm not afraid of it, okay? I want you to take your outline, and I want you to turn to page number six. We're only going to be able to finish this up. Here's the question that I have asked many pastors as I was growing up because I kept hearing about it. Are there degrees... Or levels of punishment in hell. When people die and they go to hell, will are there degrees? Have you ever heard that? Okay. Are there degrees of hell? Will somebody be tortured more than somebody else? How many of you have ever heard this? And, and I'm fixing this stuff. I, I, hope, I hope nobody gets mad at me tonight, okay? I, I'm just going to tell you the, what the Bible says. That's all I can do. I don't know what you've heard in the past. All I can tell you what the Bible says. How many of you have ever heard all sin is equal? Sin is sin, right? That is unbiblical. It is unbiblical. Okay? And, and pastors have been preaching it and talking about sin is sin. Sin is, all sin is the same. It is not. It is not. There is Old Testament and New Testament examples. And I'm going to share those with you. Now, we only have 10 minutes, okay? And I'm very sorry about that. But uh, I've, I've given you a huge uh, kind of an insert or outline about this um, because it's important that we understand this. At death, the soul of the lost person goes to Hades and awaits judgment that will determine the degree of eternal punishment. Now, we're going to start with the good part, and that's the rewards, okay? Um, so, are there degrees of reward in heaven for the Christian? There is. So first, we're going to just read through this. First, it's important to know that every faithful follower of God eventually will receive an eternal reward, which is heaven. If you're saved, you're guaranteed heaven. Amen? Amen. You're good? All right. However, according to Matthew, we are individually rewarded. The Bible says in Matthew 16, 27, For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he shall reward every man according to what? Do you see that? 
if you recall, we studied the five crowns that you have the ability to receive as a Christian. But not all Christians will receive every crown. Remember we talked about the five crowns? Okay. I'm sorry, we're on, we're on page number six. If you'll flip back to page number six. All right, so we also find this to be true in the book of Romans. Romans chapter two. But after thy hardness and pinned heart, treasured upon unto thy, or up unto thyself, wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Look at this. Who will render to every man according to his deeds? To them who by patient continuance and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. So God, after the hardness, after uh, um, the wrath, after the revelation of the righteousness judgment of God, we're talking about the book of Revelation, he will render to every man according to his deeds. All right? Two passages of scripture. Can I have an example? Can I get a witness? Here we go. Parables from the mouth of the Lord similarly demonstrate that every person will be judged according to his or her deeds. The parable of the pounds, and I don't have time to read this, but you need to read it in Luke chapter 19, is a perfect example. After reading this parable and the parable of the talents, you may be more familiar with the parable of the talents than the parable of the pounds. Uh, the parable of the talents said he gave one, he gave three, he gave five, they went out, one buried, a couple of them doubled. You remember that? Okay. And uh, it is clear that certain individuals, and thus are responsible for, more pounds or talents than some others. The Bible says that if you are faithful in a few things, I will make you ruler over many. Right? I will make you ruler over many. So, so there are levels of rewards. If you are faithful in what God has asked you to do here on earth, when you get to heaven, you are going to be a ruler. How does that make you feel? Um, you're, you're going to be in charge of something. But if you are not faithful over what God has asked you to be faithful over while you're here on earth, you will not receive the same reward. Now, I want to be very careful because I know I'm a pastor, okay? But listen to me very carefully. When he talks about being faithful, this is what he's talking about. He is talking about the things that God has blessed you with. That is not just your talents. That is just not your abilities. That also has to do with your finances. It also has to do with every aspect of your life. Whatever God has made you or given you and blessed you with, you have to be responsible with it here on earth in order to advance in the kingdom of heaven. Are you with me? Okay. Now, some have argued against the idea of differing rewards by claiming that heaven will be perfect and that something perfect can, neither, or can be neither improved nor diminished. Huh. Jesus said in Luke chapter 15 and verse number 7, I say unto you that likewise joy, look at this, shall be in heaven over what? One sinner that repenteth. More, there it is, more than over ninety and nine just persons which need no repentance. There is more joy in heaven. Did you see that? So, in at least some sense, then joy in heaven can differ in degrees. The principle of degrees uh, of heavenly reward, which is taught quite plainly in Scripture, should motivate every Christian to, in the sense of, I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day, because the night cometh when no man can work. <clears throat> there are degrees of rewards. Any questions about that? All right. This is the one that people have a struggle with. Are the degrees of punishment in hell? 
other levels of punishment. Well, let's talk about it. Biblically, there seems to be definite teaching that there are different levels of hell, at least in the sense that there are various degrees of punishment. The Bible does not specifically mention higher or lower levels of hell in the location sense, but it does allude to degrees of punishment and sins. Now, there's a lot of different thought processes here, and before we get into the rest of it, don't read ahead, just hang on to me for a minute, all right? I know it's very interesting. Um, there are three heavens. Do you understand that? There are three different heavens, okay? So I do not believe, I want you to know tonight, I do not believe that there are three different hells. I do not believe there are three different lake of fires. But I do believe that the way God works is that based upon what I know biblically, and I'm going to share with you in just a moment, that there are different levels of punishment that each person will experience. You say, can you kind of explain that? Sure. Do you realize that if a child touches a burner on a stove, and they touch the burner, they are going to get what? Burnt. Is it going to hurt? Yes. Okay. Is it going to get to the point where if they've left their hand on there for more than, let's say, a second, that it could become very uh, intolerable for them? Yes. Like to the point where they're screaming and crying, begging you to find some relief. And we're doing everything that we can to fix it, right? There's a level. The same child grows up and becomes an adult. Is sitting there cooking on the stove touches the stove, what's going to happen? They're going to get burnt, right? The pain tolerance, though, is different for when the child touched the burner to when the adult touched the burner. Why? Because we've built immunity to the pain. We've grown up. Then there are some people who have no feelings, you see stories about it all the time, about someone that had third-degree burns and didn't even know they had it. Because they do not have the same pain sensations or the same pain avenues in their bodies. So, the same way it is with a person is the way that I believe it will happen when we talk about the levels of punishment in hell. People are going to experience hell at a different level. Now, let me explain that to you. i got three minutes. Here we go. First of all... We've heard, sin is sin, Pastor. Sin is sin. It's not. There are more tolerance for certain sins. Matthew chapter 10. And whosoever shall not receive you, nor hear your words, when you depart out of that house or city, shake off the dust of your feet. Verily I say unto you, listen to this, it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Did you see that? He says, whosoever shall not receive you, nor hear your words, and depart out of your house. What is he saying? Don't worry about it. Shake it off. Because it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah. Do you remember Sodom and Gomorrah? What were they destroyed by? Fire. In the day of judgment, then for that city. Matthew chapter 11. And thou Capernaum, which art exalted unto heaven, and shall be brought down to hell. For if the mighty works which have been done in thee had been done in Sodom, it would have remained unto this day. But I say unto you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for thee. Now look at Luke chapter number 10. Woe unto thee, Chorazin! Woe unto thee, Bethesda! 
For if the mighty works had been done in Tyre and Sidon, which had been done in you, they had a great while ago repented, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. Look what this says. But it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. So there is obviously, in God's mind, more tolerable, it's more tolerance for certain sins. Now, there's also greater punishment for certain sins. Matthew chapter 23. Look what it says. I mean, it's clear as day. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye devour widows' houses, and for a uh, pretense make long prayer. Therefore ye shall receive what? The greater damnation. You see that? The greater damnation. Luke chapter 12. And that servant which knew his Lord's will and prepared not himself, neither did according to his will, shall be beaten with many stripes. But he that knew not and did commit things worthy of stripes shall be beaten with a few stripes. Why? For, hunt, for unto whomsoever much is given, of him shall be much required. And to whom men have committed much, of him they will ask the more. What does that mean? The meaning of the last section of this parable is inescapable in Luke chapter 12, verses 42 to 48. All the wicked will be punished. However, those limited in their opportunities to learn about Christ will be punished with fewer stripes than those who knew the truth and obeyed it not. Different levels of hell. You ready for this one? Hebrews chapter number 10. Of how much sore punishment suppose you Shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden under the foot the Son of God and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified in the holy thing and hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace? Of how much sorer punishment if you trodden under the feet of the Son of God? Now, are there levels of sin? This is where we talked about is sin just sin? Luke chapter 19 and verse number 11. Jesus answered, Thou couldest have no power at all against me, except it were given thee from above. Therefore, he that delivered me unto thee hath the greater sin. Do you see it? Now, Jesus specifically attributes Judas' betrayal as a greater sin than Pontius Pilate's. <clears throat> say how? Look what it says. Thou couldest have no power at all against me, except it were given thee from above. He's talking to Pontius Pilate. Therefore, he that delivered me, Judas, unto thee hath the greater sin. This is what we have to understand. So, if Jesus speaks of greater condemnation for Chorazin and Bethesda than Tyre and Sidon, one slave received more punishment than the other, uh, and that's the parable of the pounds, the one who delivered Jesus to Pilate has the greater sin, and a more severe punishment is reserved for those who trample under the foot, underfoot the Son of God. Then does not greater sin mean the greater punishment will also happen in hell? So the question is, does the Bible teach degrees of reward in heaven? It sure does. Does it also teach degrees of punishment in hell? It sure does. The good news, of course, is that heaven's offer of salvation is open to everyone. I do not believe based upon what you've just read, and I hope you don't believe it either, that all sin is equal, and that all punishment is going to be equal. It's, the, the Bible often refers to God as our Father, right? 
Well, if my son comes and he decides to put his fist through a window, okay, he gets mad and puts his fist through a window, and he's, let's say, five years old, puts his fist through his window. He doesn't know, maybe, I mean, he should, I mean, that's probably a bad example. Let's talk about the cookie jar. We'll go to the cookie jar, because everybody knows you can't put a fist through the window. So he goes to the cookie jar, he gets out the cookies, and he eats them for the very first time. I'm going to say to him, why didn't you ask to have a cookie? He's going to say, well, I didn't know I was supposed to ask to have a cookie. And then I'll say this. The next time you get a cookie, you have to ask. If I go out of the room and come back in the room and his head is back in the cookie jar and it's back in his mouth, what happens? Punishment. Correction. We do it. It's not as severe as if he does it again. Because now we've been instructed. Now we've been corrected. And if the correction goes to absolutely just total disrespect and total direct disobedience, the punishment gets more severe. If God is referred to as our Father, it is the same thought process. When we sin, if we sin unknowingly, the, 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 the matter of God just putting us back in line is exactly what happens. But if we continue to sin, we continue to sin, the punishment becomes more uh, severe. Just as if someone that has been sitting in church all of their life, priest who, priest who, priest who, priest who, dies, and it never hits, they never accept Jesus Christ as a person, or they openly reject Christ, there's a greater punishment according to the word of God. Is there any questions about that? <clears throat> I know it may be... I know it may be counter to what maybe you've heard before, and I, I'm not trying to discount anything that you've heard before, but it's important that whenever we make statements, that we make them based upon the Bible and not based upon what we've heard. You see, I grew up in the independent Baptist world. I grew up, I was in church all my life, nine months before I was even born, I was here preaching. In my mama's belly. I mean, I was there. And there came a point in my life and my pastor, in my mind, is one of the greatest men that ever walked the face of this earth. A great pastor. But there came a point in my life where I had to start saying, wait a minute. I've heard this. I may have heard it from you, Pastor. I may have heard it from different pastors. I don't know. But I've heard this. But I happen to have something to back it up. And the, one of the first things that ever came to me was sin is sin. All sin is the same. Sin is sin. When you sin against God, it's all the same. And I'm going to say, wait a minute. How can that be true? If sin is sin, then why did God destroy Sodom and Gomorrah? If sin is sin, why did God destroy the earth with the flood? If sin is sin, why is God going to destroy the earth again by fire? I don't understand that. So obviously there's something that I'm missing. And you just begin to research, you begin to search out, and you begin to listen to the parables of Jesus Christ, and you begin to see that not all sin is the same. There are levels, just like there will be levels of punishment in hell. I hope that makes sense. If you have any questions about that, um, please don't hesitate to let me know, okay? Well, I'm over time. Um, you guys got me all wound up. And um, so let's pray. And uh, please, if you have questions, about, I know we're dealing with a lot of things, even things outside of the book of Revelation, but I just love learning. I just love trying to, to learn more about the Word of God and, and what it says and what it says to me personally um, so that I'll be able to share with others. All right, let's pray. Father, we love you. Thank you for our night. Lord, give us a great rest of the day, and uh, we look forward to worshiping you again on Sunday. In Jesus' name, amen.